Section 21 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Third Decade. A.D. 1347 to 1357. Chapter 1. The Black Death. Part 1. The expenses of the Siege of Calais were enormous and led to another breach of faith on the part of the king. Notwithstanding his repeated promises to deal justly with his people, Prince Lionel, regent of the kingdom in Edward's absence, was made to call a council, in which the commons were unrepresented, at Westminster. And this council negotiated alone, oppressed, of twenty thousand sacks of wool from the merchants, making it at the same time worth the merchants' while to consent to the imposition of additional customs, a maltold, on merchandise. In spite of an insistence on the part of self-taxation by the Parliament of 1349 and many subsequent Parliaments, this arbitrary practice lingered on, and a final stop was not put to it till 1362, when the commons were strong enough not only to make but to enforce their own conditions. In the Parliament of 1347, it was enacted that in every county, six persons, two barons, two knights, and two lawyers, should be appointed keepers of the peace. In the Statute 36 Edward III, fourteen years later, they are first called by their present name of justices of the peace, and ordered to hold their sessions as they do now, four times every year. On taking possession of Calais, Edward adopted a course which reminds us of the wholesale deportations of ancient conquerors. He expelled all such of the inhabitants of the city as refused the oath of fealty to him, and repeopled Calais with Englishmen, whom he attracted thither by granting special immunities and privileges to the new citizens. He made it some years later the staple or general mart for the sale of English produce, ordaining that no wools, skins, worsted, cheese, butter, lead, tin, coal, or grindstones should be exported from England, except to Calais. Though this policy, so obviously as it would seem injurious to the commercial interests of England, was shortly afterwards reversed, the position of Calais made it continue to be a place of considerable opulence and prosperity under English rule for two hundred years and more. It was wrested from us in the reign of the first Queen Mary, who so deeply felt its loss, that she used to say, When I am dead and opened, ye shall find Calais lying in my heart. Although the cardinals had failed to bring about an accommodation between England and France before the capitulation of Calais, immediately after its fall they renewed their offers of mediation in the name of Pope Clement VI, and now found both sovereigns willing to agree to an armistice for a few months, which at the repeated instances of the Holy See, and in spite of ceaseless efforts on the part of the King of France to goad his adversary into war, was gradually prolonged for six years. Edward saw himself at the commencement of the third decade of his reign at the height of earthly prosperity. His revenues were nearly doubled by the new impulse which he had given to trade and commerce, and by his clever manipulation of the duties on produce and manufactures. A series of military successes had appreciably added to the territory and enormously enhanced the prestige of England on the continent, and the victory of Neville's Cross 
had placed the Scotch king as a hostage in his hands. He found himself still in the prime of life, the foremost power in Europe, the ruler of a loyal, united, and prosperous people, happy in his domestic relations, and with an heir renowned in arms, though still a boy in years, whose character, ability, and dutifulness could give rise to no feelings but those of love and admiration in a father's heart. In the autumn of the year 1347, on the death of the Emperor Louis of Bavaria, the electors, unwilling that Charles of Bohemia, the Pope's nominee, should be forced upon them, besought the English king to suffer himself to be named as successor, and in their eagerness for his acceptance of this offer, announced to Germany that he was elected to the imperial throne. But Edward, who at this crisis took his parliament into confidence as usual, was determined by their unfavorable opinion to decline. The English people were full of exultation. It seems, says Walsingham, as if a new sun had arisen on account of the abundance of peace, of the plenty, and the glory of victories. There was no woman who had not garments, furs, feather beds, and utensils from the spoils of Calais and other foreign cities, and then began the English maidens to glorify themselves in the dresses of the matrons of Celtic Gaul. There was such a passion for tournaments that they had to be forbidden to be held without the king's especial leave, but he himself appointed no less than nineteen in various places within six months. Some of them lasted a fortnight or three weeks. It was like one long carnival, for at these tournaments, as well as at the king's plays, and indeed on all public occasions, knights, citizens, men and women, and even the clergy vied with each other in grotesque absurdity of dress. The king himself set the example of foppery and extravagance, he appeared once in a harness of white buckram inlaid with silver, namely a tunic and shield with the motto, I, I, the widow swan, be God is yam the man. Reader's note. Hey, hey, the white swan, by God's soul, I am thy man. And gave away, among other costumes, five hoods of long white cloth worked with blue men dancing, two white velvet harnesses worked with blue garters, and diapered throughout with wild men. Women, not the best in the kingdom, appeared at the tournaments in divers and wonderful male apparel, with divided tunics, one part of one color and one of another, with short caps and bands in the manner of cords wound round the head, or with mitres of enormous height, decorated with streaming ribbons, and carried in pouches across their bodies, knives called daggers, and thus they proceeded on chosen coursers or other well-groomed horses, and so expended and devastated their goods and vexed their bodies with scurrilous wantonness that the rumors of the people sounded everywhere, and thus they neither feared God nor blushed at the chaste voice of the people. The clergy let their hair hang down their shoulders curled and powdered, thinking scorn of tonsure, which is a mark of the kingdom of heaven. They apparelled themselves more like soldiers than clerics, with an upper jump, remarkably short and wide, long hanging sleeves leaving the elbows uncovered, knives hanging at their sides to look like swords, shoes checkered with red and green exceedingly and variously pinked, ornamented cruppers to their saddles and baubles like horns hanging down from the horses' necks. 
These absurd details of fashion are curious and not without interest, as showing the peculiar form which the universal propensity of mankind for self-embellishment assumed in England towards the latter end of the Middle Ages. The blue garters, which figure more than once among the king's accounts, were doubtless intended for the famous order of the garter founded at this time. The popular account of its origin is that in the midst of a palace assembly, the Countess of Salisbury, whom Edward much admired, dropped her garter, and this giving rise to broad jests among the courtiers, the king buckled it above his own knee, exclaiming, Oni soaki malipons, evil be to him who thinks harm of that, and then and there resolved to establish the order of the garter. The earliest authority for this story is Polydore Virgil, who lived and wrote about a century and a half later. It may reasonably be supposed that such an accident, though not the origin of the institution itself, should have suggested to the king a suitable badge for the knightly order which he had already resolved to create in emulation of the round table of King Arthur. A greater contrast to all this can hardly be conceived than the state of France after the Battle of Crecy and the capture of Calais. The people of that country were reduced to such misery and subjected to such cruel violence and exaction that they had neither leisure nor spirit to bethink themselves of the national calamities and humiliation. Organized bands of freebooters, some in the name of England and some in the name of France, attacked and pillaged the towns and fortresses which held for the opposite party, and laid waste the country through which they passed on their march. King Philip openly avowed and rewarded one audacious brigand who had made himself conspicuous by the injuries which he inflicted on the property of the English. There was indeed no declared war with France for eight years after the surrender of Calais. But the French king and his partisans, some openly and some without his apparent sanction, lost no opportunity of harassing the continental possessions of King Edward. In 1349, Calais itself was all but lost within two years of its capture by a treacherous attempt on the part of de Chagny, governor of Saint-Omer, to bribe an Italian to whom Edward had entrusted the command of the garrison. The transaction coming to the knowledge of the English king, it was arranged that on December 31, 1349, the governor of Calais on the payment of 20,000 crowns of gold should admit de Chagny into the castle which completely commanded the town. But at the time appointed, King Edward, the Prince of Wales, and Sir Walter Manny, who had crossed the channel secretly with three hundred men-at-arms and six hundred archers were lying in wait, and when the twelve knights and the one hundred men-at-arms sent by de Charny were admitted with the money, the drawbridge rose behind them, and they found themselves at the mercy of the English, who rushed out from their ambush armed with hatchets and drawn swords, and overpowered and secured them. Then Sir Walter Manny rode forth out of the town, with the king and the prince of Wales as simple knights under his banner, to the bridge of New Ley, beyond which de Charny had not ventured to trust himself. The bridge having been secured in their rear, the Frenchmen had to fight for their liberties and lives, and they fought for them well. The king himself engaged with Sir Eustace de Ribaumont, 
the same whom Philip had sent along with de Charny to challenge the English to a pitched battle during the siege, but neither recognized the other, till King Edward, raging like a wild boar, and twice struck down on his knee by blows upon his helmet, at length overcame his adversary and took him prisoner in fair fight. All which, says Foisard, was right pleasant to see, for fighting well and valiantly, Monsieur Eustache de Ribemont surpassed them all. But it was not till the king received his unwilling guests at supper, and the Prince of Wales waited on them, that the Frenchmen discovered that they had been fighting with King Edward, who they thought was far away in England. Then the king, rising from his seat with a passing rebuke to de Charny for his unknightly treachery, took a chaplet of pearls from his own head, and placing it on de Ribaumont's, begged him to wear it through the year for his sake, and to tell all fair ladies that it was given to the bravest of knights by England's king. He then dismissed them unconditionally. His vanity had been highly gratified at finding and overcoming a foeman worthy of his steel, and he could afford to be magnanimous. Those who tell the story of these times are tempted by the abundance of such materials, to dwell too long upon wars and treaties, royal progresses and pageantries, and other incidents, which, though instructive and important in their way, and indispensable to a complete picture of the age, are external to the real life of nations. End of section 21